0: Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. We provide business professionals with insights and ideas for protecting their people from the vast array of threats facing organizations today. Each week, you'll hear advice and best practices from an experienced safety leader. Here's your host, Peter Steinfeld. Here in Austin, Texas, We're known for our live music scene and multi venue festivals like South by Southwest, which just so happens to start next month. These types of large scale events have complex public safety challenges and require well executed emergency planning and thorough risk mitigation strategies. Today's guest, Scott Davidson, is an expert on those topics. Scott is the founder and CEO of Code 4, an operations management and emergency services provider for South by Southwest and many other major music festivals community events, and even disaster zones. He breaks down what it takes to protect attendees, staff, and the community itself during large-scale gatherings. Here's Scott. Hey, Scott. It's great to see you. Thanks so much for being here today. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me on here.
1: I've enjoyed this podcast, and I'm, I'm humbled to participate. Also, shout out to everyone that's listening for being curious
0: and investing in their learning. Well, I am certainly curious about the topic we're going to talk about today, because I don't know how you and your team do what you do. And the first question I have for you is, why are large-scale events so difficult to manage from a security perspective?
1: Yeah, Peter, well, I think that one of the primary contributing factors is just the complexity of the risk environment. Experienced practitioners that are kind of in my space, we look through a lens in which we see hundreds, if not thousands, of risks that pose a hazard to artists and staff and patrons of these events, the challenge that we have is even the most thoughtfully planned, well-funded, and long-standing events, they have a, a scarcity of resources. We're limited in bandwidth and time and funding, and more than ever, the personnel available to mitigate these, these risks. And so it means that our job is to really triage and to be kind of futurist, tasked with predicting the future based on our our expertise, our experience, and the patterns and trends that we're observing. And so said in another way, it's to identify what risks are worthy and meaningful to mitigate against and knowingly leaving some unmitigated. And that's, as you can imagine, quite a
0: challenge. Yeah. And that could be stressful, I can imagine, because you know all these things that could happen and you can't cover them all. So you have to prioritize. There could be a hundred things and you're like, guys, we can only take care of these 50 or these 25. That's tough.
1: Yeah. It's a challenge, Peter. And another part is that it's constantly evolving. We don't get to pause and assess and you know uh, prioritize. It's constantly changing. And so that's,
0: I think, a, a pretty unique environment for anyone to operate. Yeah. And I imagine a lot of our listeners... They may not experience that constant changing and so many variables they can't protect against. Maybe they've got a facility that they protect on a routine basis, but it's good to think this way because you can get complacent when you think about, okay, here's our security procedures, do the same thing day in and day out. People do the same things. So I'm really excited to dig further in this conversation and have you expose some of these ways of thinking for our listeners. Let's start with Code 4. What is Code 4 and what types of services do you provide? So Code4 is a company that I founded
1: in 2015, and it's really like a manifestation of my lifelong quest to keep people safe. That sounds kind of cheesy, but, but it's true. I, I, I'm kind of obsessed with it. So I've, I've built a team, and together we solve really challenging public safety problems, particularly in cases in which like a large number of people gather. And that takes many different forms, but there's kind of two primary buckets that our work falls into. The first is planning and consulting, and also emergency services. So on the, on the planning and consulting, we are solutions designers. You know, We're exploring, planning, and executing strategies to mitigate risk. And the second, on the emergency services side, we actually provide boots-on-the-ground uniform personnel, often following through with our plans, or in some cases, serving a la carte services to our clientele. And so what you have is this really robust planning and execution machine that just ingests public safety challenges and solves them. We serve a couple core clientele. The first is the entertainment industry. where ranging from boutique, independent music festivals or events to large scale mass gatherings, the likes of Live Nation and some of the large promoters here in the US. And in that context, we're really, we plan everything related to risk, and safety operations from traffic control engineering, site design, meteorology, police, fire, EMS, security, command posts. We're really just kind of a one-stop shop to keep people safe when they gather for entertainment programs. The second industry that we serve is government, in which we're often kind of the government's 911. And so we might be on the consultancy side helping government agencies plan and manage large-scale events or to host large gatherings. Or in other cases, we provide resources such as EMS personnel to correctional facilities or law enforcement personnel to support large-scale events or other dynamic needs that a community might have. That kind of brings me to the third bucket that we operate in is disaster response. And of course, as the, as the name suggests, we're being responsive to unanticipated needs that private sector or public sector partners experience, such as the COVID-19 pandemic or specialized medical services for migrant housing, and and things like that. Ultimately, we're risk management aficionados.
0: Did you thoughtfully start with all three of those buckets?
1: You know, when I founded Code 4, our focus was on the entertainment industry, and specifically, large-scale events. These events are often described as like mini-cities, right, in which thousands gather, and it's our job to sustain life and to provide the resources necessary to do so. And so for many years, that was our focus. However, the vision is that there's a transition between these many cities to actual cities, municipalities and county governments or otherwise. And so we're kind of well on our way through the transition there to serving both the entertainment industry in these little temporary cities
0: and, of course, actual government agencies with communities to serve. That's great. Speaking of many cities and entertainment, being in Austin, I'm very familiar with South by Southwest, and it is a very large geographical footprint of an event. So, can you talk a little bit more about the specifics of South by Southwest and what makes this particular event so unique? Sure.
1: I'm really fortunate to have been born and raised and now headquartered in Austin, where we host many events, including South by and There's a few key distinctions that make South by really special. And and again, pointing back to the complexity of public safety management, it's a great case study. For one, it's quite unique. There is not a physical perimeter for South by Southwest. You know, it's hosted over a large number of venues in a large metropolitan area. And that poses unique challenges related to access control or management of, of a defensible space. And so I think that's really unique and special, and it allows folks to experience the city of Austin in a a unique way. It's also a really large event. In 2022, there was, I think, 270,000 plus people that participated in the different channels of South by Southwest, many traveling from across the world. I think probably every country seems to be represented in, in those attendees at South by Southwest. So just the sheer magnitude of hosting an event of that scale is quite unique. The duration of South By is really important to point out. The conference and the festival spans 13 days of official activations. That is not the typical tempo or duration for events that that we experience. And so that poses really unique challenges from a human or resource standpoint and also plenty of opportunities as, as South By transitions between the different programming that they host. With the size, with the duration, and all of the different components of what's going on, there's there's a ton of different stakeholders involved. South by and the government agencies and, and really all involved have a tremendous task of coordination and communication between all these different parties, ranging from government organizations to community partners, venue owners and operators, and just really the community at large that's impacted by this event coming to town. It's a lot to manage, and, and they, uh, I give them kudos for pulling it off. You know, something that helps is that this has been around for a long time. I think South By is just about as old as I am, you know, in 30-ish years of history. Actually, I think it was uh, founded at the year of my birth in 1987. But from a from a community and government standpoint, and really in a public safety ecosystem, we've really grown up together as South by Southwest has evolved and and grown in its sophistication. And and they
0: do a really wonderful job and improve year over year. When event promoters come to you, do you generally find that they have no idea what to do here and they're leaning 100% on your expertise? Or do they already have some sense of what's going on and offer you some thoughts and suggestions of what they require? That's a good question. and, And it definitely ranges. I
1: think we work best in new the novel events that are planting their roots, and there's a real opportunity to to set them up on the right track. And so that's something that in our ideal client profile, of course, we have other clients who are established and have an appeal to tradition, which has strengths and of course, challenges that that poses. For us, we work best as a planning partner. And part of that is to assess what's working, what's not working, and where we can best contribute to successful
0: events. Well, what's working is always powerful, but what's not working can often be more powerful. So I'd love to dive into that. Can you give us an example or maybe two when a client made a misstep and how you were able to resolve the situation?
1: I like to think of it as an opportunity for improvement rather than a misstep. But the first thing that comes up is is kind of a nod to to what's often the beginning of the process and it's venue selection. I find that the selection of venue often is an interesting story. One that's, that is often an emotional decision or a nostalgic decision, or sometimes maybe just one made with incomplete information. And we're often brought to take a look at spaces that we can recognize before we get out of the car, that it's an inappropriate location for what's being proposed. And we have to have a, a difficult conversation as to whether that makes sense for us to continue on this path. Venue selection is so important and it's complex in terms of what are the needs to produce and to be successful in that context. So I I definitely encourage folks looking to host an event, particularly large-scale events, to
0: really pull in resources to assess sites before, before investing too far down that road. What are some of the key things that people need to take in consideration when it comes to venues? Is it the type of audience that's going to show up? Is it the size of the audience? I mean, There must be an unlimited number of variables you have to consider.
1: A few core things that we look at is the means to safely um, get people in and out of that location. So I talk about before we ever get to the venue, we're assessing bandwidth of roadways, capacity to load and unload from shuttle operations, and really just getting folks there is so important. We've all heard nightmares of events with crazy traffic and people getting stranded. And oftentimes that's just a result of short-sightedness in the venue selection process because some places you just can't get them there. Of course, there's other event-specific vulnerabilities that can drive risk, that can drive expenses, or vulnerability related to weather or other attributes of the site that make it impractical to move forward with what's planned. And then, of course, I think it's really important to take a look at the, the area resources. Does the community have the capability to support this large gathering, what, ranging from emergency services to even things like gas stations and, and grocery stores and, and all of the other components of supporting this human life. And, and in some cases, you know, efforts can be made to make up for shortcomings there. It's just an expense and a, and a thoughtfulness
0: that needs to be explored. The whole time you were giving that answer, I was thinking of one thing, Woodstock. Woodstock. Yeah, oh Woodstock. <laughs> I,
1: I can't finish the documentary.
0: <laughs> I can't. <laughs> It, no, seriously, though, is that is that an event that you point to with your clients? Is it something that people have really learned from? I mean, it was, albeit a very interesting time, it was a failure on all the fronts of security and location and emergency services access and weather. I mean, all those things were just not thought about.
1: Yeah, you know, the unfortunate reality in our industry is that it's often case studies like like Woodstock and others that drive meaningful change. Woodstock is one of many in which I'm grateful to say that it's resulted in changes in the approach. And those lessons learned serve as stark reminders of why it's important to follow industry
0: standard and best practices in this process. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, speaking of that, what does preparation and planning look like for you? How do you forecast and mitigate the risks that you think about? yeah, man, I think we could have a whole series on this. Uh, but
1: what stands out to me is is really starting with bonding and rapport with stakeholders. It's something that I think is so important. And oftentimes when you think of the public safety realm, I think of these these government officials and agencies having jurisdiction almost as adversaries. And it's so important that establishing that connection and open line of communication early on in the process so that you can really become planning partners along the way. And I think that listening to them and other members of the community to to learn is so important. And then from there, I think information sharing from the onset. If I'm sitting on the event organizer side, it's incredibly important that, that we have transparency and that we are not withholding information so that we can begin to collaborate on the planning process and begin to start having these meaningful conversations with these stakeholders both in a group setting so that we can feel aligned and all on the same page as we progress through the process, but also individually and really doing deep dives with each kind of stakeholder group so that we can avoid any assumptions or mutual mystification about one what one might do in the instance of this or that. It really just takes time.
0: And, and in order for that to be successful, you really have to establish that relationship. Yeah, that's super important. I think you're so right. We could probably have several podcast episodes on this alone. It comes up a lot in the various recordings we've done in the past. And it's this idea that you shouldn't be trading business cards with local law enforcement, emergency responders when the emergency is happening. It should happen well in advance. Why do you think that is? Why do people see politicians, emergency responders, police as adversaries, as opposed to someone that works for you? I mean, they need that tax revenue that's coming in from your event that you're hosting it's it's all a good symbiotic relationship
1: i think we often
0: find that it's
1: as if the parties are speaking different languages and i i describe our work as being translators you know we're often translators between government and entertainment you know we have the same aligned goals and in, in most cases and it's really just a matter of meeting people where they're at and working through the process but yeah maybe it's a, a belief we derive from childhood that we carry with us, that these folks with badges are separated in a sense, and so humanizing them and, and spending time, getting to know them, is so important. I'm known to to ask police chiefs to give me a tour of the town, or to ask city managers to take me to their favorite restaurant, and I don't even want to talk about the event for the first few interactions that we have. And part of that is also helping to break down those walls between other stakeholders in our in our work groups, and, and frankly there's often the impression that these folks have got it figured out, that the fire marshals or the police officers, that they're the experts and they're going to tell you what you need to do and so on. And, and the reality is, is that that's not part of their training. And it's few communities that actually have the repetitions necessary for these stakeholders to really gain that experience. And so it's a it's an opportunity to learn from one
0: another. And I think that that's often overlooked. Yeah, that's that's fantastic advice. I love the idea of getting together with someone and seeing the world and their city through their eyes. It can just help create a bond that's going to be much better in setting up the event for success. And if something goes wrong, a better outcome. Absolutely. Well, what role does communication play in keeping both staff and all the event attendees safe? Oh, at we we're,
1: we're kind of communication fanatics and that, that takes form in in many different ways. But we really look at, all of the different means to communicate with our patrons and and our staff. And that starts early, early on in the branding and the marketing of an event. And what are the cues? What's the psychological priming that we're introducing into this experience? And, And really looking at how the messaging leading up to an event can help shape behavior and inform and educate folks so that we can have an efficient and successful relationship with one another. So we take a deep dive into kind of the know-before-you-go messaging, opening the line of communication for two-way dialogue with patrons that might have questions, and really helping to set expectations of what they're coming to and looking at, in the planning process, all the different cues that one will experience on site. I often, People make fun of me because I, I talk about details even including smell and colors And site design and all the different variables that we can use to communicate with folks to to help foster this kind of safe environment. And then, of course, we have like our more traditional communication means, whether that's a public address, video message boards, email blasts, and our beloved alert media, which is super active in our command posts at these events, both communicating with our staff and with the patrons or at least being a couple clicks away from pushing communication out to patrons in the event of an emergency.
0: Yeah, it seems like good communication can help dramatically reduce something from escalating beyond control. Just setting expectations in advance changes people's mindsets, allowing them a process of two-way communication so they can ask a question and get a quick answer reduces blood pressure (laughs) and outcomes would be so much better.
1: It's absolutely true. And if you look at some of the, the recent tragedies that we've seen in the event space, you can, you can easily pull out missed opportunities to help with pro-social messaging and education as to what we were to expect as a member of this community.
0: So it's something that we take pretty serious. Well, how else do you prepare your staff to be the best crowd and large-scale event managers possible? You know, from a from a hard skill standpoint,
1: most most of the folks on our team are subject matter experts in their own right. You know, they come from a background in serving as a fire marshal or having event experience in law enforcement or, or EMS and things like that. So, what's important to us is is cross training and pushing people outside of their comfort zones to learn the other sides of the business and the other sides of risk management. And so that's something that that we work really hard on, both in kind of on the job training and on the seeking of certifications and whatnot. And and there's a lot there. Fortunately, while we do have a long way to go in the United States in, in event safety, there's a lot of great information there. And I'm going to do make a quick plug really fast for any listeners that are wanting to expand their knowledge in event safety. I, w- I would certainly point you to both the Event Safety Alliance, which is a wonderful organization that is advocating for safe events here in the United States. And also the state of Texas Governor's Task Force of Concert Safety, which I was proud to be a member of on the website, which I'm sure we can help you find. There's 34 different references to literature certifications or otherwise to advance your working knowledge of event safety. So I think that that's really important to advance in our our industry. Touching on the soft skill side, you know, at Code 4, what's important to us is communication and mindfulness. You might be like, what is this guy talking about? Mindfulness, safety. On the communication side of things, something that I have a knack for, for hiring comm studies graduates. And so I have I have a really the benefit of influence of the academic community in our work. We're actually working with Texas State University to research and to develop curriculum in the training of first responders in communication. And another area that we're really leaning into is the use of nonviolent communication, which is a program by um, psychologist Marshall Rosenberg. And it really allows us to empower our team to act with compassion and to identify the feelings, needs, and requests of those that that we interact with. And um, watching that unfold on site and, and in the planning process is, is really, really powerful. On the mindfulness front to your point earlier you know we work in an environment of high stress and part of our job is to kind of be the calm in the storm and to pursue these often chaotic and traumatic environments and so it's important to me and to our team that that we are taking care of our of our minds being healthy responders so that we can be there for those in need and so we use tools like headspace the meditation app we have a a corporate account and I obnoxiously am always putting that on and starting meetings with it or otherwise. And I think it's really helpful. And also yoga and ensuring that we're taking care of our bodies because sometimes these event environments are just not conducive to taking care of yourself. And it's important that that we
0: get ahead of that. So working in these stressful environments, what's the number one piece of advice you have for your folks to remain calm when they encounter someone who is elevated in their emotion? Yeah, I think my best advice
1: might point towards the time prior to actually encountering that person. And for me it's to to put your oxygen mask on first. I'm really invested in ensuring that our team is taking care of themselves physically, emotionally, and spiritually so that they are in a position to stand firm and to hold space with these folks in these interactions. And once they're there, it's important to keep in mind observe, don't absorb. It's really critical in these environments that we take care of ourselves and while acting with compassion that we're able to protect ourselves.
0: So as we wrap things up here, is there any advice or lessons learned about public safety that you can share with our listeners? You know, what stands out to me, Peter, is is
1: the need to really think through and establish decision-making processes and specifically critical decisions that might be made in an event setting or in any really business continuity setting, in the ability to line out who makes the call and when. I think it's imperative that this is done in advance. And far too often we see this decision-making process gum up or, or turn into a committee or otherwise, when in reality, putting the work in to identify who's the appropriate person with the training experience and wherewithal to make that decision is important. And and also emphasizing those that might have an emotional bias to said decision, using the example of an event. A music festival founder is probably not the best person to be making a critical, timely decision related to the evacuation, postponement, cancellation, or otherwise of an event. And, And yet we see history prove that those folks are often trying to be located to be petitioned to make such a call. And that's just
0: not appropriate. I think that's huge. Oftentimes, we see this that when people don't have a good plan in advance, they defer to the title and not the expertise, and that can create some real problems downstream.
1: The other thing I would add is is trust your gut. Literally, listen to your body and take action. For those of us that work in safety or that how I have safety roles or functions, as we as we build in our career, we're we're like a supercomputer. We're learning through, through patterns, through our experience and through our training to spot these things and when, when to make decisions. I would encourage anyone that's listening to listen and to take action because we might not always be able to explain it or even have the time to explain it. But I think it's really
0: important. Trust your gut. Well, that's fantastic advice. Scott, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. The thing I think I really took away from this is the idea that you have to get out and meet and greet the local officials, the emergency responders. And that, I think, can translate to any organization. Like I said earlier, don't trade business cards the day of the emergency. Make sure you have those relationships established in advance and you get to know those folks and know that they're on your team. Well said. Thanks for having me, Peter. How can our listeners connect with you if they have any follow-up questions?
1: Yeah, well, I can be found on, on LinkedIn. You can also visit our company website at
0: wearecode4.com. Well, thanks, Scott. And thank you all for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. Please help us spread the word about the show by giving us a review or rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and follow the show if you haven't already. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. The industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution to learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events visit alertmedia.com until next time